Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. All right. Well, we are in this series called Where Does Your Loyalty Lead? We're kind of working our way through the book of Ruth. And as we do, we're asking God to just teach us and lead us. And as a church, um, for myself, all of us on staff, all of our core volunteers that are a part of all the different ministries that we've got going on, I just want to say that like the heart behind everything we do is we want people to get to know Jesus like on an intimate, personal level, and not just know him and get to know him really well, but we want people to be in this process of becoming more and more like him. Like, like they, they know him so well that they actually start to sort of think the way he thinks and say Jesus-y sort of things and, and actually act like he would act and, and obey the things that he says are important that we would do what he says we should do and not do what we shouldn't do, right? Like, and that only happens when you get to know somebody really, really well. Do you start to actually like walk out what their teaching is and pick up their mannerisms and stuff? And so when we say as a church, we're all about helping people know and become like Jesus. One of the challenges is for people in the beginning, sometimes that sounds a little bit intimidating or a little bit like, eh, I mean, it sounds nice, but how do you actually do that? Like, how do you really get to know somebody that well that's been gone for so long? Like, I don't know about you guys, but I don't know my great-grandparents real well. Like, I know a few stories, but I don't know them intimately well. And so it's a little bit like, how do you actually do that? And here's the cool part. God's Word is just absolutely full of stories about not only who God is and what God's like and how He relates to His people, but since the very beginning, I don't know if you realize this, but God's been telling a story, introducing Jesus to people since the beginning of time, introducing them to what he would be like, when he would come, what he would care about, what would he call people to, what was his whole purpose in coming, so that when people were ready to to follow Jesus, they would know who to look for, know how to identify him, know what his business was all about. And the story that we're going to get into today is a cool story because it not only does a bunch of this, like helping us really learn about who God is as a good God, as a good father, but it also helps us understand about this idea of what Jesus came for and what his business was about in a way that comes alive in a story that I think a lot of us can relate to. And so we're going to jump into Ruth chapter 3. And uh, we're three weeks into this series, and so this is Ruth chapter 3. starts off in verse 1. I just want to unpack these first uh, eight verses together. So it goes like this. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you, so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor. But don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. And then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. And he will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking, he was in good spirits. He laid down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. 
Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over, and he was surprised to find a young woman laying at his feet. As would we be all, right? Speaking on behalf of all men since the dawn of time, he was happy surprised, right? There are at least a couple, right? You, you, yeah, uh-huh. So before we jump in any further, we got to stop here and kind of pause a little bit and unpack the uh, uh, awkward PG-13 scene that just unraveled before our eyes. What is going on here? Is this really Bible stuff, right? Like, this is interesting. So here's, here's what you need to know. First of all, the threshing floor was a huge hard surface that the whole community would have used to thresh out their grain. We know this is at the end of the barley harvest. And so they're there. They would go late in the afternoon when the wind would pick up. And so it made it easier for the chaff to dry away or blow away as it was a little bit uh, lighter. And then at the end of the day, they would sweep up all of the grain into a pile, each person that was working kind of in their little area on the threshing floor. And then they would just lay down. There would be some, uh, probably a, a good meal and a couple of glasses of wine, a little bit of celebrating. It's like, hey, we've worked hard. This is the end. Here's the fruit of our labor, right? Like this big pile of grain. And then they would lay down and sleep there so that the big pile of grain and all that they'd worked for didn't disappear by morning with someone borrowing it permanently, right? And so that's why we have Boaz sleeping at the threshing floor. This wasn't like his everyday practice. He wasn't big on sleeping under the stars. He was there for a reason, and Naomi knew he would be there for that reason. And so that's, where, that's what that's all about. And then it, it, Naomi knows how good Boaz has been to Ruth, and she knows how much Ruth needs a husband. And so she goes into full-on matchmaker mode. I don't know if you know anybody that's always looking to make a match, right? Do you guys have some one of those people? Maybe you're the matchmaker. And so she goes into full-on matchmaker mode, and she throws down some advice that is sure to get a man's attention. So I don't know if I would necessarily prescribe this for everyone, but here's her advice. Her advice is take a bath, probably a good idea, uh, put on your best perfume. We're on track so far. Wait until he's got a full belly. That sounds like a good idea. All guys are happier with a full belly. Maybe a few glasses of wine. We're starting to get a little off track here, right? And then wait until he falls asleep, sneak up to where he's sleeping, and pull the covers back off of his feet. And all of a sudden, we're like, every mom in the room's like, what? Right? Chase this rabbit trail on your own, but pulling the covers off of his feet wasn't his feet. I'll let you... You know, navigate that when there's just you in the room. Uh, and so she sleeps and crawls up there. And of course, he wakes up. He's like a bit shocked, to say the least, at a, out of a dead sleep to find someone sleeping there with him. And one of the things that we need to, uh, to know is that's not so obvious from the text that we learn from reading some of the Jewish commentaries and some of the stories that were uh, oral tradition that would kind of supplement and, and support the text. Some of the things that we can learn is, uh, one, is that Naomi was like 40 years old and Boaz was 80. And so, uh, and we also know from some of the commentaries that um, uh, Ruth, did I say Naomi? Ruth. 
Uh, Ruth was 40 years old. He was 80. Ruth was beautiful, uh, strikingly beautiful, as so it is uh, told. And we also know that um, that she was very um, modest. And so some of the things would say that when it came to the women gleaning in the field, that the other women that would glean behind the workers would bend over to glean and put their derriere in the air, right? And so, um, and Ruth was really modest. She would sit down to glean and kind of scuttle along the ground and she was always fully covered and just, she was really modest. So this idea of going to the threshing floor at night seems pretty out of character for Ruth and a lot of the commentators have a hard time unpacking this. There's different speculations on it. It seems like the kind of the popular theory is that this was a way for her to make her wishes known unequivocally. Like, I don't know if you ladies have all picked up on this yet, but guys are terrible at hints. And so if you're hoping we'll know something based on some woman's sense, intuition, hinting thing that you think in your mind is obvious, we're not good at that. We need writing or climbing to the bed at the foot of our bed, you know, like that obvious sort of thing. Like we need obvious. And so they'll say this was a way for her to make her wishes known unequivocally, but in a way that was very kind of in line with her character, modest, private, Um, And so here's how the rest of the story goes. Let's jump back in. Verse 9, he says, who are you (laughs) at the foot of my bed? You smell good and I can't see, right? Uh, She says, I'm your servant Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me. You're my family redeemer. And so a couple things here. The the idea of this phrase, spread the corner of your covering over me, is a way of her essentially saying, like, I'm... Uh, she's declaring, like, I want to come under your protection. I want to be under your provision, under your care. Like, she's, she's sort of like, uh, for us, it would be a, like a, a little bit more forward approach where the woman would come to the man and kind of go like, I don't know if you're picking up on the hints. I'm ready to be your wife. When do you think you'd like to plan the proposal? Like one of those. That's like she was making it real obvious. And then she goes on and says that I want you to do this because you're my family redeemer. And this is one that we need to stop and kind of take a little uh, side trail and chase down a little bit. Because for a lot of people, I think when we read the book of Ruth, we think about what a cool story it is. Like what a, a, a story of redemption and romance and like, you know, just this cool, neat story. Like if the Bible had a Hallmark movie, it would be Ruth, Right? Where the, the girl that, you know, has a terrible thing happen in her life and she's super sad and she goes back to the hometown of her mother-in-law, downcast and distraught and she's buying a latte and this wealthy doctor whose wife had passed away just happens to catch his attention and next thing you know they strike up a conversation and it's wedding bells, right? Like, <gasps> do you guys not watch Hallmark movies? What's the deal? Come on. I tried to let people believe first service that I don't watch Hallmark movies, but I have seen a couple. And what I know is if you've seen one, you've seen most of them. They all have a remarkably good story, right? And, and, and that sort of feels like the way this story goes. And, and we can sort of 
kind of look at it with our American eyes and our, our love of a good story and we can go like, oh, it's so sweet and you know, Ruth is going to say how much she likes him and, and you're going to be the guy that's going to redeem my family and you're going to be the guy that's going to take care of us and oh, it will be so wonderful. And some of those things might be true in fact, but they're not at all what Ruth is talking about. Like they have nothing to do with what she means when she says family redeemer. And in order to dig into that, we've got to switch topics and go from PG-13 date night at the threshing floor to real estate. Because that's what you do. So, <laughs> I know, it's smooth, this transition to real estate. So here's what we need to know. In the culture at the time... Owning land was something that, much like today, is desirable. Some people were able to do it. Not everybody was able to do it. But those that were, it was a big deal to have land in your family. In order to have that land in your family, you, of course, wanted to keep the land in your family. And so in the culture, I'm not talking God's rules right now. We're just talking the the laws of the land at the time. Uh, There was a law that actually looked out for the original landowners to try and make it easier to get land back in your family if for some reason you had to sell it. So it would go like this. You own land, you come on hard times, you need to sell it, you sell it to someone. If that person ever decided to sell it, they had to give you the first option to buy it back so that you could get the land back in your family, right? Now, the downside is if they never wanted to sell or didn't need to sell, the land was just gone, right? It was out of your family for good. But here's the cool thing about God. God goes over and above all throughout history. He's always on the lookout. Like he makes provisions long before we even knew the provision was needed to go above and beyond to restore and redeem people and to buy back what was lost for them, from them. And so here, and when it comes to even just in land ownership, it meant a lot to God. And so when God was talking about leading his people into the promised land, out of Egypt, and when he talked about bringing them into the land, one of the things he made clear to them was that they're not going to be owners of the land. That they're going to have all of this land, but it's not going to be theirs. They won't own it, which can get a little bit confusing because we hear a lot of talk throughout Scripture and throughout this story in particular with Ruth about buying and selling land and buying land back and who can do it and who can't. And so it's like, well, if God says you don't own the land, how come everybody's selling it? And so to help you understand that, here's a a way of looking at it that makes a little bit more sense in our kind of modern context. It's a little bit more like God said, I will always be the owner of the land, but you're going to be granted like a lifetime lease. And as long as you're alive or you can pass on to heirs in your family, you can pass on that lease, the right to that land, to farm it, to live off of it, to you know have provision from it. And if at some point you fall on hard times and you're desperate, you can sell your lease, your right to that land to someone else. Now here's where God does some pretty cool things. He goes way over and above to make a way to protect the original owners, the original leaseholders, so that they could buy that back and keep it in their family line. So in the, in the laws of the land, you only had a chance to buy it back if the, owner, if the next seller you know, wanted to sell. That was it. In God's laws, 
if at some point you got your finances back in order and things recovered, at any time you could go back to the person you sold it to and said, I'm ready to buy it back. And they legally had to sell it back to you, right? The other way that you could buy it back is you could have a relative who was called a family redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. Sometimes it's translated in uh, the Bible. And that word there, either way, is called gael, and it just means redeemer. And so God provided a way that even if you couldn't afford to buy your land back, if you had a relative that could, they were obligated to buy it back for you if they were able to do that. And then on uh, over and above all of those reasons was also this thing called the year of Jubilee. Now, this is a cool thing. Some of you know about it. Some of you, maybe this is a new thing that you're not familiar with. So a very, very short explanation in the simplest of terms is that God put into place uh, a, a rule that said every 50 years is going to be called a year of Jubilee. During that year, the land rests... God's people rest, and everything is returned to anybody that had loaned it out or made a loan on it or sold it. So any land that you had sold in your family, every 50 years, went back to the original owners, irregardless. No questions, no ifs, ands, or buts. Including not just land, but people. If you had gone on hard times and sold yourself into indentured servitude or slavery, you are freed that year. Clean, no debt owed. All debts, in fact, were forgiven. And so God makes a way above and beyond what was the norm in the culture for people to buy back their land. And with land came prosperity and purpose and hope and the ability to be generous and provide for the people in the community around you. And so there was much more to it than just owning your own land. And so in this story, we see Naomi saying, like, I want to come under your protection because you're my kinsman redeemer. You're my family redeemer. Like, you are a person that has the ability to buy back what was lost. Now, here's what I think is interesting, is that in this story, Naomi and Ruth come back from Moab pretty destitute, Naomi's husband had died, Their son, her sons had died, which was one of them, was Ruth's husband. They come back to Bethlehem, and when they get back to Bethlehem, all of the women, it says, are really excited to see Naomi. They're like, oh my gosh, is that really you? It's been so long. Is it true? Could you be home? Are you really here? Like, oh my gosh. And they're rushing to see her, and the first thing out of Naomi's mouth to all of these people that are excited to see her is, don't call me that anymore. Now I want you to call me Mara, which means bitter. And she goes on to tell him, she says, when I left here, I was full when we left and went to Moab, but I'm returning empty. She actually goes out of her way to say, God is bringing me back empty. And she's like, it's like her saying, I'm not who I used to be. This isn't, the same old Naomi isn't coming back to town. She's like, I'm bitter, I'm sad, I'm exhausted. I, 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 
I don't want to be called Naomi. Naomi meant pleasant. And so she's like, right now with all that's gone on in my life and where my heart is and what, like the last thing I want is anybody to think I'm pleasant because I don't know if you know me, but that is not me. That's not what's going on in my life right now. I am not pleasant. And what's interesting is that she knew about the laws that God had in place to redeem and buy your land back and buy your hope and purpose back and direction and prosperity. And she knew that she had family redeemers that could buy that land back. But when she came home, she was so in such a funk and so sad and so brokenhearted and so destitute, she was not thinking about hope. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever been there and experienced this, but when things are really difficult in your life and you feel like you got about 10 gut punches in a row, it has a way of just draining the hope right out of your veins. The last thing you're thinking about is how God could fix this right now. You're like, I, like, no, I, all I'm thinking about right now is how much pain I'm in, how much sorrow I have, how miserable things are. She didn't come home with hope. She didn't come home thinking, oh, God can take care of this. This, this could all turn around in a minute. What's interesting, I think, is that a lot of people can identify with Naomi in those circumstances and that situation. A lot of people, I think, have been in, in times in your life where it's been difficult, where you have financially just been ruined, where you have lost someone that you love deeply, where there's been tragedy or relationship that's been destroyed that has left you heartbroken and 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 you just are locked on to your half-empty glass. And no matter how many times people come around you and try to say, look at how your glass is half full, you're like, I don't know how long you've known me, but my glass is half empty, and if you don't leave me around alone, I'm going to probably throw it on you, right? Like, this is not, like, my life is not going right right now. And in the midst of that, it's hard to hear from people, it's hard to see that maybe your circumstances could change. But God has a way of jumping in the middle of people's stuff and reminding them that he's in the business of redemption, that he's been putting things in place long before they knew they needed it. So we go back to Ruth and Boaz and the threshing floor story. And I think it's pretty cool to see how Boaz responds to her. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 10, it says, The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You're showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. You have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor, Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows that you're a virtuous woman. But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there's another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. And if he's willing to redeem you, very well. Let him marry you. But if he's not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. And... 
so the rest of the story goes on that she got out of there before daylight because they didn't want to give the wrong impression. Things that you might have thought gone on didn't, didn't go on. He was just overwhelmed and admired her loyalty. Like he, he's like, I already knew how loyal you were to your mother-in-law, but this goes above and beyond. I'm 80, you're 40, you're the prettiest girl in town, and, and you're here? You're not here because of my looks, right? He's like, the, you're here because of what this means to your family. And he, he just had this deep respect for Ruth. And he's like, your family loyalty has just stepped up a whole new level. Like, and he goes, and for that, how could I not respond? How could I not jump in the middle of this? Like, this is overwhelming to me is, is where Boaz is at. And so he sends her home with a big old pile of grain and a knapsack and they, she goes home. And of course, uh, Naomi is doing what every mother-in-law would do after she sent her daughter-in-law off to meet a guy with all of her great wisdom, bath and perfume and all, right? She says, how did it go? Right? What happened? And she's like, well, first of all, <coughs> You know, look at what he sent me home with. And Naomi's like, oh, that's a good sign. Right? She tells her the story. What happened? She says, oh, man, that's, trust me. Trust me. He is not going to let this rest. Like, you're not going to have to wait long. Like, he is, he's dealing with this. Trust me. He is going to get in the middle of this and, and deal with it. I wouldn't be surprised if it's done today. what I think is, is just so interesting, there's all kinds of cool stuff going on in here, but it is this, that, that Naomi goes from coming home destitute and heartbroken in the midst of her pain and, and suffering and loss, and she's like, I'm not pleasant anymore, now I'm bitter. And God hadn't changed, God's laws hadn't changed, Boaz was every bit available day one to be their family redeemer as he was at this point, but she just couldn't see it from where she was at. And, and, and from where she was at, if there was ever a way forward, if it was going to be a long ways off, and maybe never. And I just think, how much, how often can we get in the same spot? Like when we're just miserable and life's hard and difficult things have happened to us that we get in this spot where we're like like this is painful this is terrible like this is going to be such a long road to recover financially or until my heart feels better or until I feel like I ever even maybe care about anybody ever again or like all of the stuff we tell ourselves about how hard it's going to be for life to get better because of how bad we feel in the midst of our stuff. And God comes along and goes, yeah, or maybe today. Maybe this could get dealt with today. And what I think is so awesome is that we see Naomi go from 
no hope, not thinking about a family redeemer, not imagining that life could be any better. But because of the way Ruth treated her, because of Ruth's loyalty and her ongoing faithfulness to her and her devotion to her and her love for her, all of a sudden Naomi's heart starts to shift and she gets her eyes off of her half-empty glass and she starts to think about the welfare of someone that has loved her really well. And it starts to change her perspective. And all of a sudden she's wanting good for Ruth. And she's not quite in the spot where she's maybe thinking like my life could turn around, but she did start to think, hey, wait a minute, your life could turn around. Like this could actually get better for you. And it starts to change her perspective. And through that, all of a sudden God starts to unroll a plan that's going to change their whole life, both of them. And bring about so much good so quickly, the kind of thing that they would have never saw coming. And I think it's just important for us to remember that like God is a God of redemption. He has been about making a way for your mess ups, your sin, your mistakes, the hard things that have happened to you that weren't your fault. Like God has been at work behind the scenes to provide redemption and to buy back what you have lost and to pave a way for things to be better for you than you have ever imagined before you ever even know you needed them. That's one of the most profound mysteries of God is how God is so good and so gracious before we ever even know that we need his grace or want his help. Paul Paul said, I think he wrestled with this same thing. Like, I don't get how God is so good that he was willing to pay the price for our sin while we were still sinning. I don't know if any of you ever said some of these things or thought some of these things I have in my life growing up. Like, this is this idea that, like, long before we ever believe in God, long before we ever put our faith and trust in Jesus or choose to follow him, back when maybe we're just being ignorant, maybe we're being blinded or whatever is going on in our life or we're just young and dumb and say stupid things. I've been there where I say God's not real and he's a crutch and people just believe in him because they're not strong enough to do life on their own. And, and like, people just, that's like, believing in the fairy tale. Like, and I've heard people say all kinds of things about how wrong they think God is and how wrong they think people are that believe in God or believe in Jesus. And yet somewhere along the way, things change and they come to a spot like I did, come to a spot where it's like, I am ready to follow God. I, I, I'm, my tune has changed. And people come to that spot where they believe that God is real. They believe that Jesus is real and they want to put their faith and trust in Jesus. And when they they come to that spot and put their faith and trust in Jesus, God brings them over and it's like, I need you to see that your account shows zero. Like you owe nothing, all that has been done before, all the stuff you said about me, all that stuff. When you put your faith in me and ask for forgiveness, boom, clean, 
done. Slate's clean. Let's start over. It's paid for. And he's, and it's like this idea. Think in real estate. It's a little bit like this. It's like God's going to us. I've been waiting for you to come and pick up the deed to you. I, I, I paid for you. I've been willing for you to, waiting for you to just come pick up the deed. And the New Testament, this idea of a deed or a seal is that when you repent and turn from your sin, you ask for forgiveness, you get baptized. It says that you receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit. You get God's spirit as a seal. It's like the deed to your life, the proof that God's paid the price. And the crazy thing is, is that provision was in place before you knew you needed it. Just like Boaz being in a position to buy back their land, their provision, their prosperity, their family, to provide an heir, all that was in place before she ever even knew she was going to lose her husband. God had made a way. And sometimes it's one of those things, I think, as believers, we just go, man, it just feels too good to be true. Like, eh, like are you sure? And we try to convince God about how bad our circumstances are and how, thi- how horrible things are and how hard it's going to be and how we tell ourselves a story about how long it's going to take for things to turn around. And God comes along and just goes, yeah, I already had this all solved before you got here. I'm just waiting for you to come and ask me for help. This could be different today. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.